Hi everyone, my name is Susan Taylor and welcome back to the Family Source Surrogacy Podcast. We are so excited to be here again and to share our stories with everyone out there. We started this podcast to discuss everything within the world of third-party reproduction. We hope by telling our stories, this podcast will inform, entertain, and educate our listeners about the ups and downs associated with starting their family with the help of an egg donor, a surrogate, or oftentimes both. On this week's episode, we talk with our longtime friend, Dr. Mark Trollis. Dr. Trollis is Director of Fertility at Care, the IVF Center in Winter Park, Florida. He is past president of the Florida Society of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility and past division director of REI at Winnie Palmer Hospital, which is part of Orlando Health. He is double board certified in REI and OBGYN, maintains annual recertification, and has been awarded the American Medical Association's Physicians Recognition Award. For 10 years, his foundation, Fertile Dreams, organized seminars to increase fertility awareness and granted national scholarships for those unable to afford in vitro fertilization treatment. Dr. Trollis serves as committees for the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, as well as the editorial advisory board of OBGYN News. In early 2019, he launched a podcast entitled The Fertility Health Podcast, featuring discussions with national experts on pertinent infertility and reproductive medicine topics. His first book, The Fertility Doctor's Guide to Overcoming Infertility, Discovering Your Reproductive Potential and Maximizing Your Odds of Having a Baby, was published by Harvard Common Press in early 2020. A little more about me. As I mentioned, my name is Susan Taylor. I have been in third-party reproduction for about seven years, and I currently work for a third-party agency as a director of intake and match operations. I'm also a married mom with four little ones, and I've been a gestational surrogate twice for two different families. As well, I am a licensed home birth midwife in the DFW Texas area. Today's podcast is brought to you by Family Source Consultants. Family Source Consultants is a leading authority in third-party reproductive services. They've been helping create families in the United States and internationally since 2007. Having helped bring over 1,000 little babies into the world, it's their mission to make egg donation and gestational surrogacy a beautiful journey for everyone involved. Their team of experts work with individuals and couples from all walks of life wanting to create and expand their family. They provide a professional, personalized service to ensure that your experience is incredibly positive and fulfilling. One of the special things about Family Source Consultants is how many of their staff have personally experienced third-party reproduction. Their team includes former surrogates, egg donors, a licensed midwife, a social worker, and parents who have created their families through surrogacy or egg donation. Family Source Consultants provides their clients with an intimate understanding of what clients are going through and what they can expect. They are knowledgeable and passionate about helping you realize your dreams of having a family and will be there for you every step of the way. To learn more about Family Source Consultants, please visit their website at www familysourceconsultants.com. Hello, Dr. Trollis. Welcome to our podcast and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Susan. I'm delighted to be with you all. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited about this new enterprise that you're all doing uh, to empower patients with infertility I'm just proud to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, let's get started by you just telling us about yourself. Well, I'm a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist in Orlando, Florida. I'm board certified and I'm the founder and CEO, as well as medical director of the IVF Center Fertility Care. We've been doing this uh, this practice since 2003. It's, uh, it's a passion of mine. I've uh, experienced infertility 
not just as a professional, but as a patient with my wife for 10 years until we resolved our infertility with, uh, through adoption, which we are very, very blessed. And it's, it's every part of my life now, fertility. It's a passion. It's, uh, it's, um, it's something that I, I feel that patients are, are not getting the, the care nor the recognition uh, and, and access to care, of course, uh, in so many different areas. And that's the reason why I advocate on, uh, in Washington, D.C. I'll be involved uh, um, shortly in the ASRM, another advocacy day. Uh, I promote uh, legislation in Florida to try to get insurance coverage um, for the infertility patient, uh, LGBTQ, uh, veterans, uh, cancer patients wanting to preserve their fertility. So my life is eat, sleep, and drink uh, fertility while also, yeah. of course, uh, being with my family and being the best person that I could be. That's wonderful. I I have so many questions now. <laughs> um, well, let's start with, did you decide to go into reproductive endocrinology because of your struggles with infertility? No, no. I, I was committed to the infertility field before then. Uh, experiencing wow. infertility uh, through my wife and I was just a little gift, uh, unfortunately. So I went to medical school, of course, and like most medical students, probably I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, every yeah. field was exciting and I was going to be what that field was. Uh, but then OBGYN, during that service that we, that we uh, did about uh, eight weeks, I believe, our mentor came over one day and says, look, we have a, we have a um, opening for an infertility uh, a week for one of the medical students. And I knew nothing about that service. So I said, Sure. I said, let me do it. I'll, I'll do it. And Susan, I was hooked, lined and sunk. That was it. Uh, I, I knew that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. That one week defined my professional career, uh, my, defined me as a person, I think, uh, because I, I, could, I was so overwhelmed by the, the devastation of infertility, the intimacy of uh, the connection between the physician and the, and the patient in terms of being involved in the most personal aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, infertility has so many facets to it. Uh, endocrinology, which is the hormonal uh, uh, study uh, in women. It's uh, emergency medicine because you have ectopic pregnancies or other life-threatening conditions that can occur. Psychology uh, with the emotional upset. Uh, gynecology. And uh, of course, the, the assisted reproductive uh, technology. So that was it for me. Uh, so going into residency, which for, for your listeners, so you do four years of medical school, then you go into your residency. I knew that I was just going to do four years of OBGYN. And I had to do that to get into my fellowship in reproductive medicine. And I was uh -huh. fortunate enough to, to, to get a fellowship. And I did uh, my fellowship. And Toward the end of my residency, when I awoke from uh, being in, a, in a, um, a Rip Van Winkle state, because you're exhausted the first two years of uh, residency, you're working really around the clock. So my wife and I started to try to have a child, our third and fourth year of residency, and lo and behold, uh, we were not able to do that. So she was poked and prodded by colleagues and uh, others across the country. Wherever we went, it, it really is... Uh, quite the story. Uh, it's not something you want to have a contest for who has the worst infertility story. You know, it's right. not something you really feel great about. So we went uh, through my fellowship and wasn't able to get anywhere there. And uh, that was up at UConn, where I had a terrific experience there being trained. And then we went to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was assistant director. I was treated there with infertility. So just imagine this. And, and I don't want it to be too much about my experience, but just imagine I was a fertility physician, right? And I'm seeing patients all day long crying. And then I go home mm -hmm. and my wife is crying at night. And I felt like I was mm -hmm. under Niagara Falls. I felt I was just suffocating. It was a terrible, terrible experience of my life. Um, it took 10 years for, for me to, I think my wife was, was okay with adopting sooner, but I was a stubborn Italian from New Jersey and I didn't know anything. <laughs> uh, I didn't know anything about adoption. I thought my family would judge us. I was just, it was just wrong for me to feel that way because our family just embraced my children as they do now. And, and I wish we did it sooner. But what I tell everybody is if I did it sooner, I wouldn't have known these little guys. Uh, so it was the right time and you never look back. And, and the best word in the English language is tomorrow because you're always looking forward for growth 
and fulfillment and to realize your potential. Yeah. Well, I, I'm happy that you're sharing your journey, um, your own experience, because I think it's so important. Uh, not only to our listeners, but just to know more about you and where you're, obviously you had a passion for this before you knew that you were going to experience what your patients experience. Uh, but it had to have just really built that desire to help others have a family of their own through um, fertility treatments, IVF, uh, surrogacy, uh, all the different facets of, you know, ways you help families become pregnant and grow their families. So I just think that's incredible. And I also think it's really fascinating that you fell in love with fertility before you even went into obstetrics or gynecology, because typically when we talk to physicians, it's kind of opposite. That's where they started. And they did that for a while. And then they kind of found their way to being, you know, reproductive endocrinology and the infertility field. And so it's just so interesting that you just knew right off the bat. And maybe that was, you know, something about that. You, that's where your life was going to be heading. And, and that's why you just worked out that way for you. Well, I, you know, my wife knows this, the two easiest decisions, which are often very, very difficult for people. The two easiest decisions of my of my life was ma- uh, dis- uh, was the decision to marry my wife, or at least propose. Hope- hopefully, she's uh, hoping that she said yes, and then going into the <laughs> field of reproductive, reproductive medicine. It was there was no thought yeah. involved. It, it literally was the simplest um, uh, unencumbered decision that I that I could ever make. I never I never looked back. Never regretted, and and uh, very very blessed we're married married uh, we'll be going on 31 years uh, this september my wife and i and what i always like to joke and say is my wife says you know of those 30 years they've been five of the happiest years of her life really so no actually <laughs> just 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 teasing just teasing uh we we've been through a lot it's a it's a long marriage she supported me tremendously uh she knows that she shares me with a lot of people uh, and and she has been mm-hmm. a uh, a, a staunch advocate and supporter of, of my field. She's helped me uh, in the beginning stages with the business. And I, and I, and I've, I've used her as counsel and, you know, it's, it's teamwork, but you know, uh, you're probably going to get into this, but I, I, I thought I would say it now. The human condition is such that we focus on negativity. Uh, we focus on threats mm-hmm. and that's evolutionary. I mean, when, you know, when we were living in caves and we were worrying about the saber toothed tiger or a uh, dinosaur or what have you, you know, we had to focus on that. Otherwise, there was no tomorrow. Okay. So in an evolutionary standpoint, we focus on the negative. I encourage my patients and whenever I give talks for people to focus on what they do have, if there's a way to do that. Gratitude uh, is, is, is a powerful emotion. It, it involves stress reduction. It's very helpful in that, in that area. So comparing yourself to somebody else, and this is where social media is, is very, very damaging. Because people put mm-hmm. their best foot forward on social media, right? And they just put all their children on there. And when you're trying to conceive, the whole world looks pregnant. And nobody's life is what it seems like on social media. But if you're blessed enough to be in a relationship, or even if you're single and you, and you endured this awful pandemic and survived, there are things that you can do and find that you uh, for which you can be grateful. Uh, unfortunately, many people focus on what they don't have, what they haven't been able to achieve. And that's sad um, in, in terms of what that does to their life. It impacts them in a negative way. And when you're under significant stress, it's hard to make a decision about what to do. The best definition that I've ever seen for, for, for stress, Susan, is trying to control something you can't. Yeah. And infertil- infertility is a stress uh, of yeah. which you cannot control. You didn't ask for it. It happens. The important thing is to initially accept that this is your new normal, okay? And be proactive, be your best advocate to try to rid this burden as soon as you can and mm-hmm. not let it drag drag out like I did for 10 years. That's awful time. You never get that time back. Right. Oh, that's sage advice. So you so 10 years is how long it took. So how many children do you have now that you dis- once you decided to start growing your family. Once we decided, we just kept going with a vengeance. Uh, <laughs> we had um, the first time we were close to adopting, uh, the birth giver changed their mind a month before she was going to deliver. So we, being squeaky wheels, uh, said that uh, we're not going to accept that. Uh, we called the agency and we said, we want another baby yesterday. And 
you know, we could have just put our tail between our legs and licked our wounds and walked away. But mm -hmm. we were persistent. And I thank God for that, because uh, otherwise I, would, I wouldn't have known my firstborn, uh, my Mia. And mm -hmm. she made me a father. And so there's a special relationship with that. But I adore every single one of them. We have four girls and one boy. Uh, the, the last two are twins girls. Oh. And so we have five. And our home is not quiet. It's a joyful, <laughs> a joyful chaos. Uh, one that I wouldn't change for the world. I, I I wish everybody pursues building their family one way or the other if they're having trouble and not get so preoccupied with genetics that it paralyzes them. So I get completely that people want biologically related children. Of course. I mean, that's evolutionary. That's teleologic. That's, that is perpetuation of the species, right? But if it is becoming a significant burden physically, emotionally, and financially. The only thing that genes really give your children are often disease, if you think about it, okay? There no, there, there's no guarantee that they're going to look exactly like you, that they're going to have your special talent, that there's really anything other than the DNA. Right. And what does, and what does that mean? I'm still trying to fin that, figure that out. Our family, nobody's related except our little twins. So I don't think that genes define a family. I think family are people that grow up in the same home and love each other. Yep. And I, I encourage people to not get overly burdened. And I'm not, I'm not uh, lessening the desire by any means. But if it's consuming you and affecting the quality of your life, then I would really sit down. And if you do have a partner, I'd really sit down and think about, you know, what is our goal here? Uh, uh, if, if uh, Are we saying that if we don't have biologically related children, we're not going to have children at all for the rest of our lives, which is a long time? Or are we going to accept the fact that nobody's life is what we thought it was going to be. I'm doing this profession for over 25 years, and I and I see a lot of people every day, all new people. And I have never met anybody to say, hey, you know, Dr. T, I can't believe it. Except for this fertility thing, my life is exactly what I thought it was going to be every step along the way. It just doesn't happen that way. So life is about adjusting accordingly and mm -hmm. accepting what's in front of you and meeting it head on and being flexible and accommodating and persevering and tenacious to, to uh, overcome the challenges that we face. I love that. And I 100% agree with you that family is loving each other and growing together. And we, we have four biological children and then we have a host daughter from Spain this year. And I will tell you just one year of her living in our home. She is our daughter. She is not our host daughter. We will love her for the rest of our lives and she will always have a home in our house. So I definitely uh, feel where you're coming from with that. Very nice. Thank you. So in addition to being a physician, I know that you also have your own podcast. You're a professor at UCF and you have written a book. So that's a lot on your resume, plus five children and a wife of 31 years. So how do you find time to do all of it? So many people ask me these things, Susan. I don't think I've scratched the surface on my accomplishments. And you're being very, very kind by, by uh, mentioning them. I don't want my tombstone to say um, he, he wishes he would have rested more. Uh, I think that, or rather, I, I live my life by realizing that this is not a trial run, mm -hmm. that this is it. And I only have X amount of years. Hopefully, I'm going to be 60 next month. So hopefully another 60 years, uh, 60 next year, I'm sorry, next year, uh, hopefully another 60 years. What I mean to say is that I have a cup uh, on my office desk and it says life begins when you leave your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I never like to be comfortable. I always challenge myself with things that I uh, either haven't done or haven't explored and want to and push myself to realize what I can achieve. And only when you do that, do you realize what you can achieve. So mm -hmm. I'm taking, uh, I'm, I'm one year away from my MBA. I take uh, 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 classes uh, at the University of Delaware. I, I am a marathon runner. I run every single day. I'm on multiple committees from uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Assistive Reproductive Technology. I, I perform podcasts and and webinars for those societies. I write continuously uh, and publish. I, I sing. I'm actually a performer. I, I've, I've toured the country as a, as a vocalist uh, with large orchestras and small jazz groups. And I don't, think, I don't think the question is really, how do you find time for this? Is, I think the question really is, 
How do you not want to live your life to the fullest potential? Mm-hmm. How can you live with you? How can you live with yourself not doing that? Because sitting on the couch and Netflix and chill. I mean, <laughs> while there while there is maybe time for that on on the uh, occasional respite, uh, I, I just am so conscious of the biological clock, not of reproduction necessarily, although that's the case too. But you know it's going to be over. I mean, life passes really fast. And I want to know that I did everything that I could do to feel some sense of worth Mm -hmm. and to leave a legacy. I don't, I don't, I don't feel I've done that. I've have so much more that I want to achieve. And I just don't look back and say, you know, I wish I relaxed more. Uh, It it just is. So I'd rather, I think you pose you pose the question, Susan, by saying, how do you not have time? Right. Because because if you talk to friends and, and others uh, that you meet, people have time for everything they absolutely want. And if they don't want to do it, they don't have any time for it. They can come up with a hundred reasons why they can't do something. But if they really want to do it, wild horses can't stop you. So I really want to accomplish as much as I can in the time that I've been gifted. And I I don't want to get too philosophical and religious, but I really feel deep in my deepest soul that we have been granted a gift of life. Nature is not wasteful. Every living thing on this planet was for a purpose. And when, when people look at the meaning of life, I think the meaning of life, the true meaning of life is trying to find your purpose. Why were you granted this gift of life? And and what are you going to do with that? You know, there's a, a famous quote about your talents are God's gift to you. But what you do with those talents to help others is your gift to God. And I, and I really live, I try to live that as best as I can. I mean, I'm not, you know, a perfect person by any means, but I'm very conscious of the limited time that we have and the ability and, and what we can do to impact the world in a positive way. You know, so gratitude, very important. Generosity, equally, if not more important. So once to go back to your question is, is how do people not have time to do these kind of things? Because you only yeah. have a limited time of your life. And while you have the energy, the health, the, uh, the the mindfulness to be able to do these things, I would encourage everybody to jump all over everything that they can do in a positive way to help others and to fulfill themselves. I agree. 100%. I agree. So I'm supposed to mostly be talking to you, I guess, about infertility, but now I'm like, I'm just so curious about your singing career. And I'd love to talk about that more. Can we talk about it? I just, that's so interesting because uh, obviously, all these amazing things as a physician and in the infertility world, but I did not know anything about that. Have you been singing your whole my whole life? My whole life. I come, I'm I'm blessed to come from a family of musicians. Uh, I have, uh, I have uh, uh, relatives that have sung uh, opera and the Metropolitan Opera House in New York who played violin at Carnegie Hall, uh, who've toured the world as singers. And uh, I took some lessons, uh, but I've been singing my whole life. And, you know, when you say, can you talk about my singing, my family, and I guess all entertainers, uh, you know, you heard the, you heard the disease of stage fright, right? So uh, we have, uh-huh. we have off stage fright. We panic if we can't get on stage. There is, there's an electricity of, of being able to perform and impart your talent uh, to the world. It is a, a thrilling, um, um, fulfilling experience that is indescribable. You're on such a high that you you can't believe, and you're very vulnerable as well. I mean, like right. when I wrote this book, when you when I wrote my book, you're expressing your deepest emotions, and 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 for others to to criticize. I mean, they could say, "Ah, oh, this book is awful," or "He doesn't know how to sing." What is he talking about? I mean, you're out there, yeah. but. I would rather be out there than 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 to not. So I, I've uh, my ultimate accomplishment singing is that I toured with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. Now, for those 
mostly those that are listening, they have no idea who that is. The Tommy Dorsey Orchestra was the most famous orchestra in the 1940s. That's who Sinatra start, uh, was one of the his biggest accomplishments was, was singing with that orchestra. Yeah. And so they, they stayed on and they've had tribute bands and past in generations and so on and so forth. And so, you know, in doing my sets and shows down here, I met the director of the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. And he was uh, in, in, the, in the band when I did some shows. So we kept in touch and so on and so forth. And then one day he calls me and said, hey, Mark, uh, what do you do in New Year's Eve? And I almost fell on the floor. I says, what's going on? He says, well, our vocalist is sick uh, or he can't make the date. And we're doing two shows in Nashville. Uh, could, you, could you cover us? And, you know, obviously you hear me talking. You ask me one question, I talk for 90 minutes. So <laughs> I, I was speechless. I had not, nothing was coming out and I couldn't believe it. So uh, New Year's Eve, um, they flew me up to Nashville and we did two shows, um, you know, the dinner show and the midnight show. Uh, I'm wearing a tuxedo with the top musicians in the country playing Sinatra's music. And I don't know, even though I, I don't even know how I did it uh, because I was in such a high. It was a dream. So and I and I did more dates with them uh, that year. And it was, a, it was a tremendous experience. And I've, I've recorded two albums, two CDs, and it's my life. I mean, med you know, uh, medicine is in my blood, singing is in my soul, or however you want to describe that. But the two of those things are, are, are coexisting. I, I can't separate the two. I, I, it, it, they're both my life. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, do any of your children have musical talents or any of them? Oh, my gosh. You know, the, you know, the great thing about adopting children is that you could brag about them to the end and nobody could think you're being egotistical because they're not a part of you. They're not, they're, they're not they, you know, you're not saying, oh, look at the genes I gave them to do this. My children are beautiful and talented and got nothing from me uh, so I could brag to them to death. So um, my oldest is Mia and she is a virtuoso on the violin who plays with the Florida Symphony Orchestra. She uh, was accepted to tour China two years ago, and we followed her all over China doing shows, concerts. It was amazing. Uh, my next one is Alex, who plays the cello with the Florida Symphony Youth Orchestra. My next one is Abby, who plays the, the harp with the Florida Symphony Youth Orchestra. And then my little twins, uh, one of them is uh, beginning to play the piano, another one is playing uh, acoustic guitar, classic guitar. Um, they are also tremendously talented. I mean, I, when I talk about their artistic ability in terms of drawing, I, I can't draw stick figures. These people, these kids can draw almost 3D with just a pencil. It's just fascinating to me how they can do that. So, so I, I guess every, every child, uh, every parent wants to brag about their children, but I, I, I'm really amazed at, at what they're able to do. Um, and, and my middle, middle daughter wants to be not just a physician. She wants to be like daddy. She wants to be an infertility specialist. Oh, I love it. So maybe work together one day or I guess trainer. Or oh, I'm going to, I'll be here till I'm uh, well into my eighties to make sure she joins the practice. <laughs> well, I'm sure she'll do just as much good in the world as you're doing. So that is amazing. I have musician children myself and I love it. I love hearing the music all over my house and the singing, um, our host daughter, you know, our daughter from Spain, she's a singer. And um, I just love hearing all of them playing their instruments and singing. And it's really helpful having musician children. Are they in college now or are they in high school? What great. And now I just want to know about your kids. <laughs> ah, so uh, the oldest is 17 and the youngest are 11 year old twins. So, so 17, 14, 12 and 11. So all in the high school, uh, late grammar school, high school years. Are they all in school or are they virtual? Well, with the pandemic, everybody was uh, virtually virtual. Uh, so, uh, but my oldest, uh, who was a junior in high school, was just finishing up. Uh, she did a lot uh, going there when we could. Uh, yeah. Florida, I think, was a little bit more open to that. Uh, we tried to, you know, we were very, very nervous, but um, looks like things are, God willing, getting uh, turning the corner. Yes. So while we have an opportunity to talk about uh, advice to our fertility listeners, please, please, please get the COVID vaccine. This is a deadly disease and one in which is effectively reduced by the vaccine. 90, close to 95% effective. 
it is, I, I, I've been speaking to infectious disease colleagues for months now. Nobody has died of the vaccine. If you've been infected after the vaccine, no one has died from that. Uh, your your uh, side effects of the vaccine are limited, rare, 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 serious side effects. Um, the impact of the of the vaccine on reinfection is a milder course, if at all. Let's do this mm -hmm. for yourself. There's no impact on infertility or pregnancy. Let's do this for baby once you get pregnant. Let's do this for your families, mm -hmm. the country, and the world to do everything we can to rid this devastating disease. And I'm sure we don't want to wear masks forever. So let's do this. Let's act as one and be as generous uh, toward helping each other as we can. And this is, this is the way to do that. Thank you so much for speaking to that. I always ask our physicians at some point, usually I end with it. I'm like, when this is the million dollar question, because it's, I mean, I've gotten my vaccination. I know that, you know, Alan, who helps with the podcast has gotten his, um, in fact, my husband's taking our two daughters right now, because our 13 year old now and our 17 year old can get it. And my oldest son has had it. And we can't wait for our younger boys to be able to get it. And we can be a fully vaccinated family. Um, and so I'm so happy that you talked about that. It does not cause a fertility because we actually just had a surrogate say that last night, that was her concern during a match meeting with an intended parent, um, that she was open to getting it. If that's what the intended parent felt was the safest option for her baby, but that, that was her concern was infertility. So it's so nice to be able to say, Hey, go listen to this podcast and you'll hear that it's not a risk of getting this vaccination. Right. It speaks to the point earlier about people, uh, people embracing the negativity. Uh, so when they hear some things that are either conspiracy theorists or um, unsubstantiated, baseless, unfounded claims, those are the things that spread. People, people ears perk up for those things. They, they, it doesn't spread as much about positivity, unfortunately. But we have to all work on that to, to make that better. But please, um, let's get the vaccine. You'll never regret it. It's very liberating, okay? And, um, and it's, it's really our only hope here. Yeah, I agree. Is there any person or any, any person first, first part of the question that you would recommend not getting it? And then the second part, is there any time in pregnancy that you would say that it would not be safe? So I'll take the latter one first. There's no time in pregnancy. It's, it's a, a advocated by, by the, they just released a statement from the American College of Obergewin advocated throughout pregnancy and, the, uh, and, and also lactation during breastfeeding. By mm -hmm. the end of this year, they'll have information on infants, uh, information on, on, on the vaccinations with infants. So uh, the first question is uh, that you asked is who should not be vaccinated? There is not a group unless you have, unless you have a contraindication to the vaccine, okay, mm -hmm. components of the vaccine, um, where, where there's risks of anaphylaxis from a vaccine, which is a severe allergy. Um, uh, I, I do not know of any uh, specific uh, risk that would prevent somebody from getting the vaccine. Uh, the, the, it's meant, and if you do have medical conditions, that those are the people that should get the vaccine mm -hmm. most because they have the ones that are at high risk of, of having complications. So please um, do, do, not, do not fear this vaccine. This is a, the, the, you're, okay, so we are all in the middle of the ocean with a small life raft. And this vaccine is a huge cruise ship to rescue us. OK, that's how we have to look at that. OK, this is not this is not uh, any situation where oh, I'm worried about the technology or this happened too fast or all baseless, unfounded, unsubstantiated claims. The mRNA technology of this vaccine has been around for over 10 years. Um, they the evolution, uh, technological evolution is rapid because of the scientists that have been working on this uh, for years uh, this is the wave of the future in the way this vaccine is going to be held. You know, uh, 50 to 60 percent protection from a vaccine is pretty good. OK, mm -hmm. the vaccines that are out there, 50 to 60 percent is pretty good. This is 95 percent effective. I mean, you know, we should be running, not even walking, running to get this vaccine. And so, you know, I, I just am fearful that 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 complacency sets in. And that people start saying, well, it looks like things are slowing down. No, we can do great things by getting the vaccine. 
So please, please, all of you, uh, if you have more questions, uh, www.cdc.gov, okay, slash coronavirus, all of your questions will be answered there. The vaccine is endorsed by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, the American College of Rubber Joanne, Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, and the CDC for women's health. So please, please don't deprive yourself and the country and the world um, by not getting the vaccine. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to that. You are clearly passionate about that. <laughs> My pleasure. So kind of shifting back to infertility, because <laughs> um, now I could talk to you all day about everything else, um, but let's, we'll try to refocus. Um, shifting back, you talked about having a book and obviously um, it's about infertility. Um, and in your book, you talk about some self-help methods um, for fertility. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the, the, the book is really uh, came out of my personal story, wanting to empower people and letting them know that I just didn't talk the talk, I've walked the walk. And I wanted to give them an ability to um, uh, have a resource. There weren't, you know, when I was writing the book, I, I went online and there were not a lot of fertility books, if at all, by a physician, by a fertility specialist. I saw them by nutritionists and an attorney and a social worker and psych, um, psychologists, and, but not by a board-certified reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialist. So I said, hey, this is, this is vitally needed to educate, to empower, uh, to, to be a guide, which is what the book is. So I, I think that first thing is to realize the limitations of, of reproduction. In the best of circumstances, in women less than 30, only one out of five are going to be able to conceive that month. So for all of you listeners out there, for your friends that have told you, and I know there are a lot of them, who have told you that they got pregnant the first month they tried, they are lying. Okay? <laughs> I can't imagine. I have not met. When I talk to my fertility patients, all they do is tell me that their friends have told them the first month. It's not true. Some people like to boast about their reproduction which is unfortunate because it's hurtful and it's also misleading. Okay. So if you want to be proactive, use an over-the-counter, very inexpensive, not all of these bells and whistles and apps and wristbands and high technological things, just a simple urine ovulation predictor kit, $11, $12 maybe. Okay. You urinate on the stick. If your cycles are monthly, then in the middle of the month, starting maybe around cycle day nine or 10, and day one of your cycle is full flow. So if you're about every 28 to 30 days, start testing around day nine or 10. When you get that color change of the test line that matches the, uh, your, your, your uh, line that matches the test line, you'll be ovulating within 24 to 36 hours. That's when you get to work. And you don't want to say work because that's what fertility patients feel like. It is work, right? But that's when you start having relations. So how often should you have relations? Well, in my career, I will let you know that no fertility doctor has ever told the couple trying to conceive, hey, slow down. You're having too much intercourse, okay? Mm -hmm. You can't have too much, but you can have too little, all right? Mm -hmm. So when you get that positive color change, intercourse the day before, the day of, and the day after. Those three days are peak, okay? Mm -hmm. Any time after that isn't bonus or recreational, but the best time are those three. So in the book, I also talk about what we call a SWAT analysis, okay? If, if uh, those of you in business know what a SWAT analysis is, right? Strengths, um, uh, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, okay? So my SWAT, my SWAT analysis is S-W-A-T, and that stands for smoking. Um, that stands for um, weight. Um, that stands for age, and then T for tobacco, okay? So the S is sexually transmitted infections. Avoid, okay? Uh, ST, STIs like chlamydia and gonorrhea, those are the silent killers of tubes, all right? They can really, really damage your flopping tubes. Uh, weight, the extremes of body weight, being very overweight or very, very thin uh, can actually impair ovulation function and also cause complications in pregnancy. Uh, overweight patients, higher rates of miscarriage and diabetes and high blood pressure in pregnancy, even birth defects, unfortunately, ovulation dysfunction. The other one, A, for age, 
waiting too long. You know the biological clock. But what's too long? All right, everybody, I know everybody listening, the magic number is 35. No, it's not a magic number. It's not midnight at 35, you don't have a child, it's over. It is a gradual decline from age 30, typically, and then it continues. It's more precipitous late 30s and early 40s. But you know, at age 40, uh, after a year of trying, about 50% of women are going to be able to conceive. So it's not as abysmal as everybody feels. Less than age 30, probably about 85, 90%. Uh, after about a year of trying. So a woman is born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, of course. And as they go through life, they're losing eggs and quality and quantity go down. Mm-hmm. For men above age 40 to 45, they're going to have higher rates of infertility, higher rates of miscarriage, preterm labor in the partner, but also higher rates of autism, schizophrenia, and birth defect of the child. So waiting too long for the man is is also not a, not a, not a good thing to do. So the last one, T, tobacco. Oh, my goodness. If there is one thing that you can do to impair your ability to conceive, it is cigarette smoking. It accelerates the loss, accelerates the loss of your eggs, has genetic alterations of the eggs and the sperm. It, it puts you into menopause faster. And what I tell my patients is this, smoking, think about what you would rather be holding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cigarette or baby, right? And yeah. also vaping, vaping is just as much of an issue. Uh, so, so don't, so just toss, toss everything aside. Uh, a word about ovarian AIDS testing, if I could do real quick, Susan, because sure. uh, this is a, a lot of, a lot of misinformation out there. The ovarian AIDS testing is not meant to predict your ability to conceive. So women, when you look at ovarian aging, it's quality and quantity. Quality of AIDS is based on your birthday. As a woman gets older, quality of eggs diminish. Mm-hmm. Ovarian AIDS testing with anti-malarian hormone or AMH, as well as with ultrasound, measuring the numbers of small little cysts on the ovary that represent microscopic eggs called the antral follicle count. Those tell you an idea of number, but that does not predict your ability to conceive naturally. A woman with a very low AMH level, anti-malarian hormone, has mm-hmm. the same pregnancy rate as a woman of the same age, there was a study by uh, Ann Steiner in the Journal of the American Medical Association just a few years ago. And she looked at women be- between the ages of 30 and 44. They had the same pregnancy rate, whether they had a low AMH for their age or a normal AMH. Okay. So it doesn't predict natural fertility. What it does predict, it tells us how much to stimulate you for IVF. And it gives us an idea about any eggs we're going to get. It does have an impact on the IVF cycle as well. Uh, the the more uh, uh, the lower the AMH level, uh, the lesser eggs and lesser embryos and a lower success rate. But um, it, it it does not predict either the reason to go use an egg donor or not do IVF at all. So if you have poor ovarian age testing, your your fertility clinic should not use that to say, oh my God, you got to do egg donation, or oh my God, you got to do adoption, unless you're in menopause or ovarian failure. Those that testing should not be the main reason for making that kind of decision. That's really interesting. Kind of on a separate side of about the AMH testing, what about for your egg donors? What, what do you still, is there a certain number that you want them to be at? Uh, excellent question, Susan. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, for, for an egg donor, we, I'm the medical director of uh, Cryos International, which is the donor egg bank uh, here in Orlando. They're, they're worldwide. And so, We'd love to have our egg donors be less than 30 with an AMH level above three, okay? okay. Uh, so, but we put it all together. I, I will tell you anecdotally, and which, which we shouldn't practice based on that, but I had a, I had a, a lesbian couple. Uh, they were both 40. One was not getting pregnant with her eggs. So her partner said, I want to get pregnant with IVF and I'll give my partner some of my eggs. So the woman that, they're both 40, okay? So the woman that used her eggs did not get pregnant. She gave her eggs, the other eggs, uh, what was left over to her partner. Her partner has twins. Wow. So, um, yeah, so egg donation is not an absolute, but but if you are an egg donor uh, that you're going to donate anonymously, it really would be in the best interest to have a good AMH and age less than 30. If If you're doing it for a friend or a special circumstances, sister, cousin, niece, you know, I just tell you what it is. I'll give you a uh, reasonable statistics. And then you have to make the decision uh, how important the DNA is for you 
and and whether it's worth the lower number of eggs yeah. and success rate really yeah that's good information so before we go i'd like to know what's next for you well i just added on a chief operating officer and we are growing our practice uh, significantly with with physicians um uh hoping to uh, achieve uh, uh, approval for starting a fellowship to train reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists for the future i uh, am uh, my desire is to write another book i want to uh, develop a uh, international destination for reproductive health care research and education and i have uh, in the immediate future at least i just was uh, signed up for the new york city marathon for next year um, I want to get back to music now that we're back uh, uh, with the pandemic easing yes. um, and, um, and just continue to, to push myself to my maximum potential. So that, that um, I'm, I continue to have goals and revisit those goals. And, and, and I write a list of them every January to try to accomplish throughout the year. So I'm, I'm, I also get my to finish my MBA next year. I'll, I'll be I should be done. I also would like to maybe spend a little bit more time with some gratitude uh, and and to uh, appreciate to some degree what I have accomplished and what I do have. Um, I am one that that um, does seem to let me just say accept uh, and and not necessarily acknowledge what I do have, but to work toward what I don't. But I've. Uh, as I'm getting a little bit older, I'm, I'm starting to appreciate the things that I have done uh, to, to, to develop that. Uh, I'm, I'm starting uh, in July with the Journal of Assisted Reproduction and Genetics. Uh, I'll be a section editor uh, on, on uh, controversial topics in reproductive medicine that we're going to be putting out monthly. Um, so maybe uh, being involved in leadership in our specialty societies. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the future because there's so many things that, that, that I haven't done that I want to explore and, and realize that I can do it. And if I can't, to learn how I can make it better if I try again. Perfect. Well, good luck on that marathon and everything that you're doing. And it's so obvious how passionate you are about reproductive health and third-party reproduction and infertility and I think that our industry is so very lucky to have you and we appreciate everything you do for us at the agency and for our patients and our surrogates. Um, and we really thank you for joining us today. Well, those are, those are kind words, Susan. I don't, I don't uh, 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 feel that I, I, I am all that you've said, but I appreciate <laughs> that, that, that you acknowledge that. Uh, and I'd like to reverse the praise um, that Family Source Consultants has been, I think, a leader uh, in the field of third-party reproduction. Uh, the, the support that they have given our practice, uh, our patients, uh, the collaborative effort that we have done, uh, they, they really are a stellar agency. And, and um, there is so much uh, 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 that I am grateful for uh, in, in, in our, our relationship uh, with each other. The, the egg donors and the gestational carriers that, that uh, you all have um, uh, uh, given us, they're heroes. And I, and I hope that they feel that way because they're, they're giving truly the gift of life to, to people that have open arms that are empty. And I, I always will remind them as they're going through this cycle, and even from the first visit, I said, you know, I, I want you to realize that, that you are a hero in, in uh, your efforts to help someone else. So uh, kudos to you all. And Stacy is, um, um, there's not enough things I can say about Stacy. Uh, of, um, she is a workaholic. Uh, she does it with such ease. And, and, and she's so gracious. And uh, I, I just, uh, I cherish our friendship. And, and I, I look forward to so much, so much exciting opportunities in the future to continue to grow and and to provide families to those that have challenged have been challenged with the uh with the inability not to so far thank you and we really appreciate you and just love working with you
What an amazing guest. Thank you so much, Dr. Trollis, for joining us today and sharing your expertise with our listeners. We've been friends with Dr. Trollis for years. He is certainly the doctor to work with in Florida and a leader and pioneer in the third-party reproduction industry. If anyone out there has a story related to surrogacy or third-party reproduction that they'd like to share on the Family Source Surrogacy podcast, please email info at familysourceconsultants.com. We are going to be doing one of these every couple weeks, so please make sure to find us on Spotify or familysourceconsultants.com. Until next time, bye.